0: Welcome. My name is Natasha Sherman, and I am your host. And my guest today is Tony McAleer. He is the author of The Cure for Hate. So in the United States, over 250,000 people a year are victims of hate crimes. And between 2008 and 2017, 71% of extremist-related fatalities in this country were committed by members of the far right or white supremacist movement in the cure for hate tony who is a former white supremacist it is his journey from a violent extremist to radical compassion so welcome tony thank you for having me i know we talked a couple of years ago and we talked about your story but now you have a book so Tell me just a little, for those people who know nothing about you, tell me a little bit, a short synopsis of your journey into being a white Aryan supremacist, running a hate line, to transforming into the cure for hate.
1: Right, right. and so I came from uh, a middle-class affluent uh, background. My father was a psychiatrist, I suppose I can blame it on that. Um, <laughs> But I was if you think back to who you were at the age of four, I was this bright, curious, um, mischievous, open to the world, sensitive, um, and where that's who we come into the world to be. And then life happens to us, and we we lose a lot of that. It becomes hidden, suppressed, and 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 such. And um, I would, walked in on my father when I was ten with another woman, and. That really rocked my world, and I went from an A B student to a CD student, and the private Catholic school I went to, uh, together with my parents, decided they'd try and beat the grades back into me. And um, that sort of led me on a downward spiral of anger, of confusion, of, uh, you know, searching for identity, you know, to understand my, my place in the world, that created the vulnerabilities which which um, uh, which drew me into the the white supremacist movement sure. I don't I don't blame anything I did on my childhood. I just want to be really clear about that. everything I did I chose to do. Um, and what I share in the book is um, what the payoffs from those choices were. Human beings don't do anything for a reason and it's it's what I got from making those choices that to help understand the lens through which I made those choices is why I wrote the book.
0: I think that's really important and, uh... You know, I, I as you were talking, one of the things that the questions that came up, so here you are, a sensitive kid, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, like, like we all come into the world, you know, open, excited. And things happen, and life happens, and uh, for some it's worse than others, for some it's better. But so at 10, you find your father with another woman, and then, uh, I mean, that would send anybody reeling and clearly you didn't know what to do with that information or you know besides being in shock is there anything that could have happened at that time that you think might have made it less traumatic like would you have wanted your father to say or do something or any conversation you would have liked to have had
1: uh, i'm i'm not i'm not sure i'd have to give that a lot of thought i mean it's it just because it really rocked my world and I felt betrayed. My world turned upside down and and I, I developed a mistrust for all the authority um, yeah. figures yeah. in my life. And I, I began become very, very rebellious and and
0: I can get that whole the word mistrust. So because especially as children, an adult, our most compelling adult in our lives, what occurs like betrays us. So we then extrapolate that none of the adults can be trusted. Like, the world is not a trustworthy place. So you look elsewhere. And um, I think one of the lines is, somebody asked me once, how did you lose your humanity? I didn't lose it, I replied. I traded it for acceptance and approval until there was nothing left. So let's talk a little bit about that, because you were looking for identity. You were looking for some place that would give you a sense of belonging, acceptance. Um, and, and again, you could get the rebellion against authority. So it makes sense that it would come from people more in your age group, perhaps.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's um, masculinity tied into that. Sure. And- and um when we when we don't have someone to teach us how to be adult men you know we, we it's defined amongst our peers and that can go horribly wrong but you know for me you know the other there was the the anger and the mistrust at at authority figures and then there was the effect that the violence from the teachers at school had upon me mm. and and when i came across skinheads the first time i was in in all of them, and because they, they had the one thing I didn't—I was a soft kid growing up—but um, they had toughness, and that was the one thing that could have made me feel safe in that office over and over and over again. Because I saw the tough kids go in the office, and they came out with a smile on my face. I came out of you know a blubbering, whimpering, crying yeah. mess, and um, so I, I gravitated to to that, towards that that toughness and the the feeling of power that I got from being feared even if they were fearing the people i was with not me personally uh again i went to the most unsafe place to feel safe and and in order for me to have their protection i had to have their respect and in order for me to have their respect i had to engage in all the same acts of violence that they did and each time i did it felt it, at the beginning you know once the adrenaline rush wore out um it felt uh you know, you'd feel bad, and you know that was a horrible thing that happened to that person. But each time I did it, I felt a little less bad, until I didn't feel feel anything at all committing acts of violence, and and that's where I was completely alienated from my own humanity. And I believe that the level to which we dehumanize other human beings is a mirror reflection of our own internal disconnection and dehumanization.
0: Yeah. So um, one of the things you say is the most common factor in the backgrounds of those who wind up in violent extremist movements is emotional trauma. Not everyone who experiences emotional trauma becomes violent, but it still has explanatory power, as you indicated. So trauma leaves us with a belief system that forms part of our identity. You call it toxic shame. We pick up the belief that we aren't lovable enough, smart enough, that we're powerless and weak. And we go out into the world and we live our lives in reaction to that. So that's where you were drawn to skinheads and you ran a hate line. You really kind of, as you say, disconnected from your own humanity and disconnected from the rest of humanity. And what did promoting hate give you, hatred of some group?
1: Like, right. What's right, the rush? So, Well, in that case, if, you know, toxic shame is, again, that, you know, in the various flavors of it, it's that feeling of being less than. Yeah. So, and we live our lives in reaction to that. We spend an inordinate amount of time convincing the world we're not that or um, numbing ourselves to, you know, we, we hide the lie or we numb the lie. And ad- adopting an ideology that tells you you're greater than. Uh, uh, it's the perfect mask for that, and so you know, I ask people if, if, if you know, if toxic shame is at the root. What's the you know, and the, and the mind likes to work in polarity. What's the word that's the opposite of shame? Pride. Uh, I'm proud of my race, white pride worldwide. Wow. That's and, really and so powerful. And so we're we're compensating for this lie we believe about ourselves in inside and and we go to these grandiose schemes to to project something into the world to can to make sure that the world doesn't see what we're actually feeling inside
0: yeah wow very powerful and i think what's powerful about your what you're saying is there are millions of kids who are vulnerable and who feel that way and for anyone to come and hand them an identity. And as you say, something to make you better than or more powerful than uh, because you feel so less than, it's very compelling, but it's also very frightening. So uh, I'm going to go back to another question just in terms of your history. So at some point, it wasn't like one day you woke up and said, Oh, my God, I've been wrong. You know, it was a journey for you. And from what I gather, it started with the birth of your daughter. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Yeah, that was sort of where the dehumanization started, to, started its reversal. And, you know, and, and children are, are, for me at the time, they're, they're safe to love. Yeah, they're not capable of rejection or shaming or ridicule until they're older, of course. But <laughs> yeah. that's all they want to do. But in that moment, that that love was infectious. It was, you know, it was hard for me to resist it, and not that I was trying to resist it, right. But it, and it was a, it was a safe place for me to allow myself to open up bit by bit, little by little, um, and and join them in that that place and. And the way that they rehumanized me is as I got to see reflections of my humanity reflected back at me through their eyes. And it was the beginning of a, of a thawing process. It didn't happen overnight.
0: Yeah.
1: I, mean, I didn't have a road to Damascus moment. Yeah. Um, but it was the beginning of a, of a process. And the challenge was I had so much invested in my identity as a white supremacist. And, and I think this is the challenge in trying to deal with someone who's in that space today is it wasn't what I believed in. It was who I was it was what i listened to what i read the movies i watched the people i hung out with it was everything i lived and breathed was white supremacy and and so if you try and challenge the the ideology of someone in that place you're also challenging their identity and and the defense mechanisms come up and but with compassion we take a compassionate approach you know my kids were able to help me recognize my own humanity and and, and from there that was the the basis from which I can start to see other people's humanity, because yeah. the, the level to which we dehumanize other people is is a mere reflection of our own dehumanization. So the more I can be humanized, you know, and if dehuman internal dehumanization of toxic shame is is the cause, then compassion rehumanization is the is the cure. And so they they helped me leave the movement, but I still had identity wrapped up in it. Sure, I
0: suspect that it was felt pretty destabilizing because if I'm not that, then who am I? So you have this chink of, you know, uh, breaking into your heart and your level of compassion and and safe love. And I love the way you put that, you know. It's safe to love children. They're not going to reject you. Uh, so, uh, but then who am I if not that?
1: Well, then, you know, there's serendipity that that. Plays a little bit of a role both in who we meet on our way in and and how we come out and and I became a single father the when the kids were two and four a full time single father I had them four days a week and she had them three days a week by four and six I was a full time single father and that became my identity
0: nice you know that
1: was I could let go of white supremacist and embrace uh being a single father because it you know it's it's completely unfair but in the 90s if you were a single father people would pat you on the back and tell you how wonderful you were and and i don't think i don't think too many single mothers got the same right uh, the the same treatment but it gave me a sense of meaning a sense of purpose a sense of identity and social validation but in a healthy way this time yeah i mean i i could have got it in a healthy way before i could have been captain of the football team but i wasn't a jock so that that avenue of healthy um, acceptance, attention, and um, um, approval from my peers um, wasn't wasn't an option to me. I mean, if we can't get it in a healthy way, we'll get it in an unhealthy way. And yeah. But they provided the transition of, of identity to come out. But I hadn't, at that point, had left the movement, but the movement hadn't left me.
0: Yeah, so uh, one of the things that um, you talked about was... Um, First of all, that, uh, yes, in looking at the group, uh, I can't think of a single person who experienced joy on a daily basis, looking at the white supremacist group and whatever. And that sounds very eye opening. Was it just noticing that?
1: yeah i mean you don't notice it when you're in the middle of it you're right. because you're not feeling joy either like you just yes, yes. you can recognize it when you start hey I, i'm feeling these great things are going on in my life and when i look back at where i was nobody was feeling that and it's not until we're out of it and we can start to feel those things that we can recognize their presence or absence and in, in other people but it takes an awful lot of energy to be that angry all the time and you're surrounded by angry people reading angry books and listening to angry music um, I know that it's nobody had a healthy relationship the the relationship dysfunction and and domestic abuse that was going on was was rampant and you can't have a um, healthy relationship with another human being unless you can have a healthy relationship with yourself and and nobody there had that healthy relationship with yourself so it was this bubbling sea of dysfunction that churns through people the the lifespan of people in this movement is not a not a huge you you get you get people that rise to prominence and and because of their you know national identity stay in it for a lifetime but most people don't it this movement has an incredible churn as it as it um, seduces people in and then spits them out
0: yeah so uh you uh, started uh, you went into therapy and that definitely altered your life. Uh, So it wasn't, again, you don't go through that much of a lifespan doing what you do, and then just overnight, as you describe it, it's a journey, it's a process, it's your children, it's your lifestyle. You couldn't give as much attention to it in any case. So I guess my question is, what do you say to those people who are In it now, like where is it that you can make a difference with them, having come from where you came from to where you are now?
1: First thing I do is it's not. I get to ask this question a lot. It's what would I say? It's first thing I do is it's not so much what I'd say. It's it's I would listen. I would listen and and I would be curious and and say, why do you feel what you feel? What what do you feel? What do you believe? Why do you believe that? And, And really when you give people an opportunity to be vulnerable with you in a space without judgment, um, that's when, that's when the walls come down and, and that's when, um, vulnerability and healing can, can happen. And that's where shame gets, gets watched away to paraphrase Brene Brown, who I'm a big fan of. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's, it's about listening. And it doesn't mean by listening, I don't, uh, agree with what they say i don't support what they say but i can listen to what they say to to try and understand where it is they're they're coming from and you know you can ask you know how's it how's your life working out for you how's you know yeah. are, are you happy like is is this where you want to be and and you know we it's it's about inviting that vulnerability wow um, and, and that draws the people out of their mind where all the defense mechanisms are
0: You know, it's interesting as you talk, because certainly in a therapeutic environment, that happens. But I really get how it could happen just in a one-on-one conversation, the profound impact of being heard without judgment, just being given the significance of listening and, and being free to give your answer. And years ago, I read this quote, and I probably have shared it somewhere else, is, Um, The experience of being heard is so close to the experience of being loved that sometimes the two are indiscernible between one another. And and as you talk, I really get that, that if you sat down with someone and just ask those kinds of questions and not try to proselytize, judge, whatever, but actually it might open a door. So what kind of work do you do in this group uh, Life After Hate?
1: Well, Life After Hate was founded in 2011 by six people, including myself, who we'd, we'd managed to find our way out of the uh, the movement on our own with, and and there wasn't any groups to assist us. So we thought, well, how how can we help others uh, make the same journey we did to who are where we once were? And that was the the idea of, of founding Life After Hate. And It was founded at a uh, after a conference in Dublin. Uh, called a summit against violent extremism, where they invited fifty former violent extremists from around the world who had had to be working with peace uh, in peace activism, and of course, critically important is included the voices of survivors and victims of violent extremism, and a bunch of academics and NGOs and government and stuff, and to understand how people get drawn in and how people leave. And as these, you know, there was. There was gangs there, like MS-13 and Crips, and there was, you know, neo-Nazis and skinheads, but there was the IRA and the Protestant nemesis, the Ulster Volunteer Force, there was a former president of Colombia, and a commander from FARC, the Colombian uh, rebel group, and there was Mujahideen, Red Brigade, Beider Meinhof, Al-Shabaab, I mean, you, you name it, it covered the gamut. That transcended race, ideology, class, faith, geography, gender, and then I started to listen in, in one-on-one conversations to people tell me their stories. I started to we started to notice themes, you know, starting to emerge, and and there was the the sense, uh, you know, what they got out of the movement. They were drawn by the sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, the camaraderie, all of those things. It wasn't the ideology that that actually drew them in it's what came with the ideology that that made it uh, attractive and and so young people having those vulnerabilities um, that that arise out of toxic shame is is what makes the the ideology um, seductive and on the way out people sort of shared a similar stories and they're all they oft, often seem to be it was almost always a compassion was the big turning point and it either came from a child. Uh, and anecdotally, I'm going to say the majority of stories I heard were were female child, and um, receiving compassion from someone who they didn't feel they deserved it from was an incre- incredibly powerful um, experience. And I was an exp- I, I experienced both of those things um, in my recovery from from my disconnection and dehumanization. And so we. We started off with the best of intentions and the lint in our pockets and set out to sort of make a difference. And, um, I've since over, over this last little while, um, moved on from life after hate, but they do incredible work. I think since Charlottesville, they've, they've helped, uh, several hundred people, half of them families, half of them individuals struggling to deal with themselves or a loved one that's caught up in this, um, yeah. this dark, dark cycle. And,
0: so I'm work. going to interrupt you Fantastic. here in the because I, I think that's highly significant. I want to ask you two more questions before we run out of time. Uh, so one of them is why the book? What's the main message? Because I read it and I think it's very powerful. I think it's very uh, effective uh, and thought provoking, and you know, can uh, you can use it as a guide? What is it that you want people to get? by reading
1: the book most of the other books written by formers you know former extremists that really the whole book is most of the book is their time in the movement i think i kind of get out of the movement at about the halfway point and really it's it's to understand the 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 journey back i have over a thousand hours of one-on-one and group counseling that are giving me the insights to truly understand how it was that i got drawn in and what it was that that helped me emerge and so it's it really is a book of of hope and the the core idea um is is radical compassion and radical compassion um if if shame is is the and hate is the problem compassion is the cure and the rehumanization is the cure and so radical compassion has three components number one is our practice of compassion um must take us outside our comfort zone. Uh, with the problem with polarization in this society, it's not going to be fixed from inside our comfort zones. We have to be prepared to go outside of our comfort zone. Number two, there's a social activism component, component and if compassion is, you know, taking action to alleviate the suffering of another, we also have a social activism component, which Wants to change the environment that gives rise to or creates the suffering in the in the first place, and the third one, and I think it's the, the the most important one, and it's the most courageous thing a human being can do. If we want to give compassion to others, we have to mine it from within ourselves, and that's the the hardest part, and the most courageous thing a human can do is to go and look at. Their flaws and their wounds and the, the things about themselves that they don't like and learn to accept those things and have compassion for who we are. And when we, when we do that journey inward to develop self-compassion, it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do because I didn't feel I deserved forgiveness or compassion of myself. But having got there, it's exponentially increased my ability to have compassion and to serve, serve others. And once I realized it wasn't about me, it was about you know, the more I have compassion, and forgiveness for myself, the more I diminish my capacity to do harm in the world. Once I realized it was for the people around me that I needed to do it, that was sort of the real game changer. And in this society where there's increasing dehumanization on both ends of the political spectrum and the middle is evaporating, I think the the middle, and the middle doesn't mean neutral, Um, But the the middle and the average everyday person has a role to play in this. And we have to inspire through our actions who we are in every moment of every day to inspire people to a different choice of action. And we have a choice in this in this world. We operate either from love or from fear and we and we get to choose and and we need to become aware of that choice and inspire others to operate from love.
0: That's so great. (laughs) Uh, It's really I mean, you know, I'm so glad you said all of that. And the thing is that um, I think, personally, it's uh, not—it's something you have to be intentional about. I keep telling people, you know, you're going to be around anyway for however long you're going to be around. So make the journey interesting. Make the journey—I think it's our personal evolution, but I think it's a daily commitment. You know, I remember the Dalai Lama's uh, interpreter being interviewed, and he talked about when he was a monk— that so these are people who are committed to already to all kinds of ideas about peace. And every day they practice, practice compassion. So just having the practice of compassion is, you know, again, is powerful enough if you set that as a context for your daily life. So thank you for writing the book. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for sharing all of that. and. Uh, Uh, You know, I would love to ask you more questions, but that will have to wait for another time. And I encourage people to get the book. Reach out, you know, because there there are options. And even young people who see this, who might feel a twinge of connection, reach out. Contact Tony. Read his book. Find some group where you can feel safe. Tony, thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My name is Natasha Sherman. Thank you for joining us.